This is the time when we would uh, begin our message, but yet there's also times for interruptions when things seem to be a little bit different and maybe a little bit more pressing even than what might be said later. I don't know if you've ever found that life has been full of interruptions. It certainly have been. And uh, this morning I want to just talk very briefly about an interruption that took place in our country this last week. In Charleston, where nine people lost their life. It's a tragedy that's sometimes hard to wrap our heads around to understand where God is, what's God's desire, what our response should be, all kinds of things. There are some people who would politicize it. There are some who would like to just trot it out in the media, uh, list all sorts of reasons why it takes place, but often will not address the deep spiritual needs and the sin that invades our lives. So this morning I'm going to just take a little time to interrupt our message, if you will, to pray. I'm only going to start the prayer, and I'm going to give you a little time in the quietness of your hearts to pray. If you've never really prayed before in the quiet, fine. It's as good a time as any to do it. But then I will close off that prayer. But I'm going to lead off the prayer, each petition, and give you a little time to think and to pray. So we do pray. Father, today, as we gather, our hearts are hurting. And especially at this time, dear Lord, we pray for those who lost loved ones. Lord, we also lift before you the church that lost their pastor and the husband and a father. Yes, Lord, we pray for this young man who committed this horrible crime. 
And Father, finally, we pray for this country that produced this young man. Lord, as we pray this morning, I'm reminded of a Bible passage from Second Chronicles that says, If my people, and that's what you said, it's mine, your people, who are called by your name. If your people, called by your name, would only humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, then you would hear from heaven and forgive their sin. And would heal their land. Lord, we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So thank you for taking that time of interruption. We turn our attention to God's word at this time. A reading from Acts chapter 1. Where we are reminded of the power that is available to us. To make changes. This is in my former book, Theophilus. And by the way, uh, this book being written by Luke was talking about his former gospel, the gospel of Luke. He said, I wrote all about, uh, wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So far, the reading of God's word. You know, after Jesus was raised from the dead and before he ascended into heaven, to go and prepare a place for us. He spent 40 days walking this earth, uh, talking and eating and fellowshipping with his disciples. And among some of his final words that he spoke were these, go into the, and go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Now I would tell you that that statement was among 
the last things that Jesus said to his followers, but it was not the last thing that he said to them. And this morning we're going to take a look at the last recorded words of Jesus that he ever spoke on this earth, because they're, they're very important words. They're essential for every believer to hear and to heed, because without receiving this promise that Jesus gave his disciples in his farewell statement, it makes it very difficult indeed to live the Christian life. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that you all know what happened after the death of Jesus. His followers scattered and they abandoned him. Judas betrayed him and then took his own life. Peter denied him, ever even knowing him, and the others just ran away, except for John. Then they kind of hunkered down for a while. They locked themselves behind closed doors in an attempt to escape perhaps that same fate that befell Jesus. They, they even began considering how they might begin to pick up the pieces of their lives and wondering if they could you know, one day ever makes sense of what had just happened. And then after having given up all hope, the unthinkable took place. You see that second passage, because this is where Mary Magdalene comes to where they were staying, where they were locked behind closed doors and said, I've seen the Lord. He's alive. But we know Peter ran to the tomb to see for himself, but Jesus wasn't there. We know his shroud was there. The linen that covered his face was there. Peter, however, was not convinced. Luke says he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, we know later that day, Jesus did actually appear to his disciples in the flesh. They heard him speak. They saw the scars in his hands and feet and his sight. He actually had a fish dinner with them, and they believed beyond all doubt that he was who he claimed to be, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Now, what happens is eventually Jesus gave them what we call the Great Commission. And certainly the disciples, when they first heard it, probably thought this is not so much the Great Commission as it is Mission Impossible. Because he was telling a ragtag bunch of misfits, quitters, and underachievers to go out and change the world. He didn't say go change your street. He didn't say change your neighborhood. Uh, he did not say just change your side of the town. They were to change what? The world. Now, Jesus certainly knew how, what a monumental task this was and how ill-equipped the disciples were and that they didn't have it in them to pull this off on their own. They needed something more. And so after Jesus gives them this brand new global mission, he has one more thing to say to them, and it would be the last words they would ever hear him speak out loud. Now, you might say that his reasoning uh, behind what he had, was about to say kind of fell along these lines. It was like Jesus stood in front of him and said, look, guys, I know I've got a really big job for you to do. A job, to be quite honest, is bigger than you. In order to accomplish what I'm about to ask you to accomplish, <clears throat> you need more than just a set of rules to live by. Uh, you need more than just the promise of heaven after you die. Uh, in order for you to do what you, I'm asking you to do, you're going to need literally a blast of dynamite. You need to be infused with enough power that you can move beyond yourself and, and into this whole new level of living. And if you think that's impossible, don't worry, because I've got it covered. Now, here's exactly what he did say. 
part of it is captured in the final paragraphs of Luke, and this part is captured in the first chapter of Acts, which was also written by Luke. He said, I am going to send to you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with what? Power from on high. And then in Acts chapter 4, he said, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift, my father's promise, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I hope you caught that. He said, power. You will be clothed with power from on high. And you're going to receive this power. Now, the Greek word for power is dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. And see, that's the kind of power that Jesus promises to his followers, them back then, and then us today. He promises us dynamite power. And so today I want to talk just a little bit about experiencing the power from on high, why we need it, and how we receive it. Now to begin again with, I'm going to point out a few things. The first of these is this, that knowledge alone is not enough. This may surprise you, but you know, it's not enough just to know the facts of the Christian faith. It's not enough just to know what the Bible says. It's not enough to be able to recite the Apostles' Creed. It's not enough to know that Jesus is Lord and risen from the dead. Now, I'm going to tell you, Satan could do all of those things. See, these things are good, but they're not enough. It's certainly where you start, but merely knowing is not enough. If it were, Jesus probably would have said to his disciples, Okay, look, you've been with me three years. You've heard me teach. You learned it pretty well. You've seen a few miracles. You know what I can do. And now you've seen me raised from the dead. Therefore, based upon the uh, preponderance of evidence that I presented to you, it should be enough for you. Knowing all this, go out and turn the world upside down. But that's not what Jesus said. Because he knew that merely knowing the facts in your head is not enough to get the job done. You need more than just knowledge to get through life. You need power. You need dunamis. You need dynamite. That leads me to the next thing, and it's just that without God's power, life eventually unravels. I mean, your lack of power and desperate need for power will eventually become obvious. And that's exactly what happened with the disciples. They discovered what they were truly capable of on their own. I mean, on their own, they were quitters, they were cowards, they were betrayers, they were abandoners, they were deniers. Uh, They knew the sin that they were capable of, and they knew the obedience that they were incapable of, and they knew they needed something greater than themselves. Now, i got to tell you, it was probably not only obvious to them, but it's probably obvious to everybody else around them. That's why when Jesus said, you will be clothed with power from on high, not a one of them spoke up and said, uh, no thanks, Lord, I'm good, I'm fine without it. They knew they needed it. See, every follower of Jesus, and I'm talking to you and myself, every one of us eventually comes to this in our life, where in our desperation... Or in our frustration, we have to say, I can't do this on my own. I need power. Now, some people get there pretty quick. 
There are some people, like my grandpa used to always say, it's an awful dumb horse that doesn't learn from a beaten. I mean, I was 18 before I figured out he was talking about me. For some people, it takes decades for them to learn the lesson. But everyone who is actually serious about being a disciple eventually comes to the place where they realize that they can't do it on their own. They need power, and they need power from above. Now, if you don't believe me, let's take a look at one of the greatest people ever lived. His name was Paul. And and Paul uh, said in the book of Romans, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Does that describe any of you? I remember a Donald Duck cartoon, of all things, where Donald was heading to school one day, and suddenly on one shoulder he had a little duck angel, and on the other shoulder he had a little duck devil. And they were arguing as to what he's doing. Well, I'm not suggesting that any of us walk around with ducks on our shoulder. But there is a battle going on inside of us, a battle, part of which says, do this, and another voice that says, no, don't do that, but do this instead. See, Paul was experiencing the same powerlessness the disciples experienced after the crucifixion, the same powerlessness that we ourselves experience from time to time. See, we were created. You and I were created to live in God. We were were created to be connected to him. We were created to be in relationship with him. We We were created even to be dependent upon him. And when we try to live any other way, When we try to unplug from God or disconnect and live by our own power, you're in real deep weeds, friends. You're going to inevitably come to the end of yourself. Now, I've been at this now as a Christian for over 70 years, in the ministry almost 50 years, and I have yet to see a credible exception. It happens to every last man, woman, and child. Without God's power in your life, Life eventually unravels. Now, this brings me to the next thing I want to point out. It's this, that God's power is available to every believer. Remember that first verse again, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will, what, receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you might say, well, when does the Holy Spirit ever come on me? Well, if you're a baptized believer in God, that's where it took place, right there at a baptismal font. Maybe it came later in life with the... In the Waxahachie River or wherever you got baptized. I don't know where it was. But when, the, when, when you came to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit came on you. And he came with a package, not only a spiritual gift, but also a dynamite portion of power. And he says, and when this happens, you might be. No, he says, you will be my witnesses. See, this is what Jesus promised to his followers. And this is exactly what happened a few days later. As you'll hear about next week, uh, the disciples receive power and, and then some. See, after the day of Pentecost, there was an explosion of growth. There was an explosion of salvations, an explosion of baptisms and miracles and compassion and unity and holiness and healing. It was an incredible time, and it was the fulfillment of God's promise that he made to that group of people. Now, some people would want to tell you, well, but yeah, Pastor, that's, that's 2,000 years ago. 
I've got a Greek word for that, baloney. If you want the Hebrew, horse feathers. Nonsense. The same promise made to the disciples is yours, it's mine to receive. We all need it. And the good news is we can all have it. Now, the guidelines that Jesus gave his disciples before his ascension are essentially the same guidelines that we should follow today. And so, just in our time remaining this morning, I want to talk to you about what's involved in receiving power from on high. Just kind of three principles or just three little things to kind of keep in store, three caveats to keep in mind. And the first of these is understand that waiting comes first. How many of you like to wait? Nancy and I pulled off of uh, the interstate this morning and got stuck behind about three or four trucks that were hauling those giant propellers for those big wind farms. And they were struggling to make the corner to get off. And as we were sitting there waiting, I'm looking at my watch saying, I really don't like to wait. And as we were sitting there, some cars behind us decided to just creep by us, knowing full well we were going to be turning at the corner too. They couldn't wait. Well, look what Jesus said to his followers. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Do not leave the city, but wait for the promise the Father has promised. Now, actually, this runs contrary to my natural way of doing things. I'm sure it does with you, too. My attitude is, what do you mean, wait? I mean, there's no time to wait. I want it now. Uh, Why can't we have it now? Why can't I do it now? Why should I have to wait one more minute? These questions sound all familiar, Nancy. I think Nancy and I are going through that right now. What do you mean, wait? What, What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, why? I'm about to say something really profound. If you've got a pencil and a paper, you want to write it down. But here, here it is. This is really profound. We have to wait because it's God's way. That's about as profound as I can get. We have to wait because it's God's way. But I want you to understand that waiting on God is not the same as waiting on your spouse. Now, when you're waiting on your spouse, it's because you're ready And you're waiting on him or her to get ready. And all they're doing in your mind is what? Something that's causing you to have to wait even longer. But this is not the way it is with God. When you're waiting on God, most often it's not because he isn't ready. It's because you aren't ready. Therefore, the time we spend waiting on God is time that we should be doing what? Getting ready. See, we need to wait on God, but waiting doesn't mean we just sit there and do nothing. It means that you use your time to get ready for whatever it is God might have in store for you. Now, what were the disciples doing while they were waiting for this gift that the Father had promised, the gift of the Holy Spirit? They were taking care of business. They chose a brand new apostle to take Judas's place. They spent their time, Scripture says, in prayer and fellowship with one another in worship. They spent their time seeking God. And I'm going to tell you, that's the only way to wait. In fact, you should always keep these two ideas synonymous. Waiting on God and seeking God. They just go together. Waiting on God, seeking God, they're together. They go hand in hand. 
And I want you to know that waiting on God always pays off. Here's a couple of examples. Psalm 27. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and what? He'll strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. A more familiar passage from Isaiah 40. But they that what? Wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be worried. They shall walk and not faint. See, waiting pays off when you're waiting and seeking the Lord at the same time. Now, if you find yourself in a situation right now where you've kind of come to the end of yourself and you know that you need kind of a blast of power, a blast of spiritual dynamite in order to move to the next level, seek the Lord while you wait. And see, while you wait, spend your time doing what you can do to get ready. If you've got some unfinished business to wrap up, wrap it up. If you have some steps to take, take those steps. Do everything you can to make yourself ready and put yourself in a position to receive that power when God decides to give it. And during that time, by the way, seek God. Did I already say that? Seek God while you wait. God's power is on the way. It will arrive when he's ready to send it. And it will arrive when you're ready for it. The second thing I'll tell you is that when God's power arrives, you'll know it. How are you going to know? Well, I think sometimes God will begin to cause things to happen, and you're going to sit there and go, man, way beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is here. He's calling us now to move forward. You're going to know. Sometimes you'll sense it in your spirit. Now, I've stated more times, I think, from the pulpit or in teaching than I can count, that you don't live by feelings, and and that will always be true. At the same time, there are times when God's Spirit moves in your life, and you know it's happening because you feel it. There are waves of joy and waves of love and waves of peace and waves of confidence, waves of certainty, waves of compassion, waves of purpose that just flood over you. Let me tell you a story about this guy. His name is Michael Morton. Michael Morton was wrongfully convicted in the state of Texas of murdering his wife. He was convicted by a corrupt police force and a dishonest district attorney. For two decades, 20 years, he languished in a penitentiary here in the state of Texas, losing appeal after appeal after appeal, even though the evidence existed that would overturn his conviction. Now, one day, after yet another legal disappointment, he came to the end of his road, and he cried out in desperation to God, Please help me. I've got nothing left. Well, I'll tell you, nothing happened that day. But one night, a few weeks later, as he was getting ready to sleep, he put on his headphones so that the music would drown out all of the other noise that goes with prison 24 hours a day. And suddenly, he said in his book, He was clothed with power from on high. In his words, he said, God bathed me in light. And from that day on, he was a changed man. He was a free man, even though he remained in prison for six more years. And finally, even though the district attorney did everything he could to prevent withheld evidence from being properly tested, it was tested. 
and Michael Morton was exonerated and released from prison. Today, he will tell you, as he tells many other people as he travels around, that he was released from prison in June of 2011, but he was actually set free six years earlier when he had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and was clothed with power from on high. That's why I say, friends, when God's power arrives, you will know it. You will see it in the circumstances around you. You'll sense it in your spirit, and you will see a difference in the aftermath. The results you experience won't be what they used to be. Now, I can speak from my experience. Probably many of you can. I mean, when I have tried to do things, even ministry-related things of my own power, the results have been pretty sad on occasion. But when I'm moving in ministry and life by the power of the Holy Spirit, guess what? The results become eternal. See, God's power makes so much difference in our lives. I mean, so to borrow a line from the good people at American Express, I would put it this way. God's power don't leave home without it. Seek his power and his anointing in everything that you do. Here's another one. Receiving God's power doesn't mean that he does everything and you do nothing. You know, let's say, for example, if this church would win 100 people to Jesus this year, it's not going to be because God randomly sends people into our front doors as we just kind of sit here and plop in the pews next to each other and wait. We still have to put forth the effort. We still have to put forth the work. But the difference is he's now the power in our engines. Now, sometimes the work is challenging. Sometimes it's exhausting. It involves late nights. It involves long hours. It's determination. But the difference is you're doing it with what? With his anointing and with his blessing of what it is that you're doing. See, the same is true in your personal life. Experiencing God's power doesn't mean you just sit there and wait for him to do it all. It means that you do what you can do and let him work through you. Here's the third thing. God's power is always related to God's purpose for your life. Last week I preached a word of life in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, the message was about Gideon, from zero to hero. And I remember one of the points that I made, it's one I've been kind of hanging my brain on this last week and trying to remember is kind of going through some difficult decisions and everything, and it's this, that uh, God's purpose is always greater than our perspective. God's purpose is always greater than our perspective. We see things through these eyes when we need to see them through his eyes. What God has in store may not necessarily be what we are looking at right now. Jesus said, you will be whose witnesses? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. See, God wants to use you in such a way that others will see him. They'll see his glory in you. He wants to use you in such a way that your life is just kind of a living, breathing testimony to his greatness and goodness and mercy and his compassion and his overwhelming love. See, when you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you become a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and God's purpose for you is that you become a productive citizen in his kingdom. That in your work, in your relationships, in your family life, in your activities, you further the kingdom of God some way, somehow, 
under his direction. And that means that in your work and your relationships and your activities, you're touching lives and ministering to others in the name of Jesus. So friends, keep this in mind. God's power is not just for you. It's for the benefit of others. You'll be clothed with power from on high, so your life will have meaning and purpose, and that purpose will be a blessing for others. So I think what this all comes down to is this. God's plan for you as an individual, God's plan for all of us together as a church, is really too big for us to imagine. It's mission impossible. I mean, I think about that. I've been writing a book about my life for years. It's called Just a Dumb Kid from Nebraska. I mean, that's who I really think I am. I'm just some dumb kid from Nebraska. And the premise of the book is I continually find myself in situations where I look at God and say, what on earth are you thinking putting me here? But again, God's purpose is greater than what? My perspective. It's not, I didn't put you there for your benefit. I put you there for that person, or that time, or that church, or that situation. We are in Mission Impossible. I think all of us who attend this church regularly realize we're in Mission Impossible in many respects. Some of you might be thinking, well, can we really change the world? I mean, we can barely get through the day. How can we as a church ever begin to expand our ministry when we're barely making ends meet as it is? I mean, how is this possible? Well, I give you the straight answer. It's only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you need more of God's power in your life, then decide today that you will seek him and that you will wait on him expectantly and prepare yourself in every way possible so that you are in a position for him to move in your life. And guess what? Move he will. He will change the circumstances around you. He'll change the circumstances within you. And he'll pour out his blessings upon your efforts. I mean, God's power makes all the difference in the way that you and I live our lives. When we try to do it by our own power, we're like an engine that's running low in oil. We're kind of knocking around everywhere we go. But when we are filled with God's power from on high... Our lives run like a well-oiled machine, not problem-free or pain-free, but still with power nonetheless. Now, one thing I've said over and over in each of these messages in this series is this, that you cannot make your mark in this world until God has made his mark on you. And this is how he does it. He does it through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why I say, ask God to fill you with the power of the Holy Spirit. So that you can be a difference maker in the lives of others. Let's pray. Lord, we know that when we came to faith in you, we received the Spirit. We know that. At the same time, we sometimes keep the Spirit all locked up in our lives and never draw on the amazing amount of power that resides within us. You've given us spiritual gifts, but we've chosen not to use them. And we have failed to draw on that power. And so, Lord, we just pray that you release the power in us, not for our benefit. It's not for us. It's for the benefit of other people. Lord, help us become difference makers, not just in a church, 
not just in our families, but wherever we go. We pray it in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.